Our second reading this morning comes to us from chapter 5 of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Listen for God's word to you. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week we began a conversation talking about the ways that the resurrection changes things. Not just 2,000 years ago, not just once we die and go to heaven, but how does the resurrection change our lives today? And uh, last week we looked at the way that the resurrection enables us to cross boundaries. It doesn't make it easier but it gives us a reason to try harder. And today we're going to look at something that um, that is another way that the resurrection changes uh, things, and that is in the area of fear. I was, uh, As I was reading this passage, I was thinking to myself, somewhere I have heard, I don't know exactly where I picked it up, I got the idea that one of the things that people are afraid of um, is, that, is that it's public speaking. And so, you know, this is the age of Google, so I went to look that up. I know people who are terrified of, of appearing in public saying things, so I went to, to look at how common is that. Is that, is that a true thing that most people are afraid of public speaking? And it turns out, because this is the age of Google, you can find out these things. There is, there is a, um, there is a, a, a survey every year done by Chapman University, and they, they figure out, they, they survey a bunch of people, and they figure out what are the top 100 most common fears. And uh, in it, yes, public speaking is there, but it's number 59, which is pretty down, down there in the list. And frankly, the numbers at that point, they start to be, you know, one or two people mentioned it. So, so, um, so I'm not sure how common that particular fear is. Uh, but as I was, as I was looking through the list, I was, I was struck by this. Um, uh, and my, the first thought that when I saw that was, was one of these things is not like the others. <laughs> And so if you've ever lost your, your computer data, if you've lost digital photos or something, uh, you, you can relate to people in some way who are afraid of, of nuclear war or nuclear accidents. So, um, so uh, I'm not sure if uh, surveys like this are all that effective in really kind of teasing out a ranking of, of, uh, uh, of um, fears. Maybe if you were to ask the same people, how would you rank those, they wouldn't necessarily put put the data loss in the middle of those two. So, so I don't know how much we can, we can draw on a survey like this, but I think it does illustrate, you know, people do have all kinds of fears and, and maybe speaking publicly is not the one that they think of, um, way up at the top of that list. But I, I think actually in some sense, 
uh, people are afraid of speaking publicly, and maybe perhaps more so than 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 they have been in recent times. I think in recent times they have become more fearful. And what I mean is, I'm going to call it political correctness, but I don't mean what probably a lot of you are thinking I mean by political correctness. The word political comes from the word polis. It's like metropolitan or something like that. It means the city. It means it means socially relating to one another. And I think a lot of times we find ourselves self-censoring, that there's something we would like to say, something that we believe is true, and yet we don't say it. Uh, not because of partisan politics, but simply because uh, we're afraid of how it will make the other person relate to us, what they will think about us, um, how it will color their opinion of us. And I think that type of, of may, maybe social correctness would be a better word than political correctness, because in our society, we really think of political correctness meaning partisan politics and and I think that I think a lot of us have experienced that moment of self-censorship we know we know what we'd like to say at work or or to a spouse or to to a neighbor uh, there's something that that is a true thing we believe it and yet we find ourselves biting our tongue and saying you know maybe not just you know avoid that whole can of worms that's just not going to go that path so we self-censor and um so i think i think in that sense a lot of us are afraid of of um political correctness again and i mean it in the in the old sense um in the uh i've heard this phrase before and i looked it up and i found out who said it Uh, the athenian general and orator pericles said this almost 500 bc he said just because you do not take an interest in politics doesn't mean that politics won't take an interest in you. So I think to, to find that, that the, the place in which we can speak freely, the place in which we can speak candidly is, is shrinking is a worrisome, is a worrisome problem. Um, again, not, not, not about electoral politics, but about just the sense that there is less and less room for people to be honest. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about fear of public speaking in that sense. And to do that, I want to look at this lesson today. And it's first of all, it's just a great story. I think all of us love a story where the little guy takes on the, the big authority. We, we just naturally gravitate toward those sorts of stories. And this is one of those. So I think, so I think the, the passage we heard from Acts is, is an example of that. It's a good story. We like to hear those sorts of stories, but it's also an important story because it bears on the topic of, of speaking candidly, speaking honestly in circumstances that may not welcome candor. So I think it's, it's an important lesson for us. And I think particularly for Christians, it, Carries an important lesson, which is that that um, we should we should have extra reason to be unafraid when we when we speak the truth. So what I want to do is look at this passage. We're coming in at the very end of a three chapter long story, so I don't want to um, I don't want to rehearse all that. But I do want to a- explain that both sides are afraid in this story. Both sides have have fear. Now we understand why the the little guy, the apostles, Peter and the other apostles would be afraid of their circumstances because they've been brought before the high council. And just a couple of months ago, the high council was the one that that caused uh, Jesus to be sent to Herod for execution. So they know that the high council of Rome will listen to and pretty much obey the instructions of the high council. So they know that, and they know that Rome, Rome actually gives them a lot of deference. We're going to see next week how Rome actually obeys the, um, the high council's uh, uh, rules even outside of the land of Judea. So, so they've got a lot of power. So we can understand why they would be afraid of the people who put Jesus to death just a few uh, months ago. 
We also remember the stories of the time when Jesus was arrested, how the disciples all scattered. They all ran out into the dark and tried to hide. And uh, we we're familiar with the story that Peter, the very same Peter we hear about in our lesson today, uh, was um, was so afraid that he denied uh, knowing Jesus. He not only denied he knew Jesus, but when a middle school, school girl asked him, hey, aren't you one of his followers? He said, I don't even know who you're talking about. He denied even knowing who Jesus was, much less friendship with him. So we can imagine how they are afraid. But it may not be as obvious that the the high council has fears too. So the apostles have their fears, but the high priest and the Sadducee party, who are the leaders of this, um, of this uh, uh, trial, are afraid too. So we read... Um, uh, if we go back a little bit um, in, in the book of um, John, we can see what led them to arrest uh, Jesus. Uh, so there was some, some personal acrimony. There was, Jesus had insulted some people. But at that time, according to John, the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. And they said, what are we going to do if we allow him to go on like this? Soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy our temple and nation. So they had fears for um, not just their job, but really the existence of their culture. They thought that the Romans could actually come in and destroy them. So they wanted to keep a lid on things. They wanted to shut Jesus down because they had fears about their society. So they had high high priest then, and this this high priest, the same high priest Caiaphas, was high priest at that time. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. It's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should be destroyed. So he said, for expedient reasons, not because it's right, but because it's expedient, we're going to have Jesus executed. So they have fears. They're afraid of the Romans. And they have internal divisions. We read about this um, uh, later on in the book of Acts. We read how the council was divided. And this was not hard for people to do. The council was divided, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And those are just two groups. And we don't pay much attention to them today. But it was important in that era that they had differences. And so there was this... Uh, genuinely partisan political uh, uh, negotiation and compromise that took place on the high council. So the Sadducee party, the high priest and his friends, are are trying to negotiate things with the Pharisees so that they can get what they want. And then lastly, they're afraid of the people. Just the verse before the part we begin reading, um, the captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. They had a, they had uh, gotten a following out in the temple courts, and they were afraid that if we don't ask them politely to come, then there will be a riot. So so they, there is a lot of fear on both sides of this equation. So it looks like it's a, a, an imbalance of power, but the writer has exposed us to the inner fears of the of the um, of the apostle uh, of the um, high, high priests as well. So. We pick up the story then in verse 26. And they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. And he said, we gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. And he's referring back to an earlier part of the story in chapter 4. He's saying, we arrested you once before, but we let you off because there was a neat thing. I think it's absolutely neat in um, in Jewish jurisprudence at this time, which is that ignorance of the law was an excuse so if they examine you and they find out you're actually ignorant of what you're supposed to know, then you could get off. But then they would they would warn you, don't do it again. And from then on, you were you were liable to pr- prosecution. So they said back in chapter four, we looked you over and figured out you were fishermen who never went to a famous rabbi school. And so we said, you don't know what you're doing. You're in the big city now. Stop doing that thing. 
And so they let them go back in chapter 4. But now in chapter 5, they kept doing it. They kept telling people about how Jesus had been raised. And so they arrested them, and the high priest says, you are disobeying the specific instructions we gave you. He says, um, you are trying to make us responsible. You've, instead of being quiet, you've filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. And so now at this point, Peter could say, oh no, you've got it all wrong. Um, we were just telling people some interesting religious stories, um, but it, we were not violating your rules. Uh, we're, we're still ignorant fishermen, let us off the hook. That's what they could have done. But instead, Peter says, it's true. He says, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him. You are responsible. And the language he uses here is actually very strong language. You can look in different translations, and sometimes they say slay, sometimes they say murder. It's a strong word. He, he did not just die, you know, his death, right? It, deaths happen. You know, well, you know, we aren't responsible. He's saying, no, you are responsible. You murdered him by hanging him on a cross. So Peter says, it's the truth. And he says, more than that, we're witness of, witnesses of these things. We saw, we saw Jesus' uh, uh, ministry before he was arrested. We saw him die, and we saw him raised. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. He says, we have to tell the truth. You know this. You're the high priest. You know you grew up back in Sunday school, you knew the way that the law instructs people to behave. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. That goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments. This is something that the high priest would have known. And he's saying, we can't, we cannot tell a falsehood in a judicial matter. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to go on being witnesses about Jesus. So he says, we're going to do that. And he sums it up by saying, we must obey God rather than any human authority. We have to obey the Ten Commandments because you're the high priest and you're important and I would obey you in a lot of things, but not when it contradicts God. So those are the obvious reasons that he gives. And any Jew in that era would have given the same reasons if they had been witness to these things. But Peter goes on because the resurrection changes everything. Peter says, The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. He says, we're not afraid. The worst thing you can do to us is kill us. And death is a temporary circumstance. That it's a temporary matter. Death does not have the final word. That's what gives us hope even today as we mourn the loss of our friend Lane. We know that death does not have the final word. And Peter says the same thing. He says, God raised Jesus and put him at the place of honor in his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. He said, we're not afraid. The resurrection has changed our outlook. And yes, you have all the power in this circumstance, but ultimately all your power will do is kill us. And death is temporary. Now, we would expect Peter to show up good in the New Testament. This is, this is what, you know, it's his book in a sense. He doesn't, in fact, if you read the New Testament, you see most of the time Peter comes across as kind of a doofus. But he's a hero in this story, and you would expect that. But it's not just the New Testament that shows this. 
There was a physician in the first century. Some of you may have heard of Galen. He wrote a medical textbook back in the second, sorry, second century. He wrote a medical textbook in the second century that was the standard textbook well into the Middle Ages. And he wrote about, he wrote about, um, Christians. He, he was not a fan. He didn't like them, but he said, in the religious community of the followers of Christ, there are most admirable people who frequently, who act, frequently act according to perfect virtue. And then this is what really stumped him. He said, this is to be seen not only in their men, of course, you know, but even their women <laughs> would act with perfect virtue. And then he says this. He says, we may infer the people called Christians derive their faith from signs and miracles for fearlessness of death and hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Now, we can only speculate what he meant by every day, but we know he was a physician and he conducted some of his anatomical um, uh, research on animals. But in that century, in that era, you were it was prohibited to dissect a corpse. So what he is thought to have done is to have hung out near the gladiatorial games. And when people were dying, he would examine the body as they were in the process of dying, which is probably why you don't want to go to a doctor in that era. Um, everything he knows is, is what causes pain and suffering. But where would he have seen that? When he says, we've seen Christians act in a way that shows fearlessness of death, he would have seen it probably when he was at the arena watching people die. And he was no fan of Christians, but he saw the kind of fearlessness that Peter exhibited in our passage today. So what's the lesson for us? Well, the lesson is the same one your mama taught you, which is that honesty is the best policy. Not because it will necessarily get you off the hook. In fact, if you read ahead in this passage, you'll see that that they debate for a while whether they should kill them. And then they finally decide not to kill them. They call in the apostles and had them flogged. Now, this is the the 39 lashes that you read about sometimes in Scripture. It was a brutal beating, and it was not unknown for people to die just from a flogging. So this was not an easy, off-the-hook experience. So don't tell the truth because it will get you off the hook. Tell the truth because it's the right thing to do. Mark Twain said famously, if nothing else, you have an easier job then. So tell the truth because you don't have to remember what your lie was. But it's more important than that. Viktor Frankl was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. He had been a psychologist and he survived the, that experience. And after the war, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he said he understood or he had gained insight from that experience what gives people the ability to uh, exist in adverse circumstances, how they can get through a horrific experience like he did. And he said, he said, the first thing that happens to you is it, it corrupts you. It makes you inauthentic, right? You, you are no longer who you really are. And it makes you, it makes you lie to yourself and to others. And he said, he said the problem with that, as he reflected back on the, on the Nazi era, he said that deceitful, inauthentic individual expression is not caused by totalitarian, totalitarianism. It is actually a precursor. It is what enables totalitarianism. That the, the lies we tell ourselves, the, our willingness to go along with things that we know are not true, are what actually enables the totalitarians of the world. 
And as you chew on this, think about this. Somebody who was an expert on that said the same thing, essentially. He said, he, Adolf Hitler, said, since they themselves, the public, often tell small lies in little matters, they would not believe that others could have the impudence to distort the truth so famously, infamously. Adolf Hitler said, it was the small lies we tell ourselves that enable the big lies that got people like him into power. So tell the truth, not simply, uh, not because it will get you off, because it may not. And not simply because it's easier, as Mark Twain said, but because it's important. It's important for your integrity, and it's important for the society to function. <laughs> Some of you may have seen this book that came out last year. It's a fascinating book. Uh, it's a bestseller, Jordan Peterson's The Twelve Rules for Life. I was interested that one of his rules, rule number eight, is to tell the truth, or at least don't lie. That's rule eight. So, um, if you're not uh, if, if you're not gonna uh, if you don't see Jordan Peterson as an expert, well, maybe John Wesley will will um, convince you. John Wesley was one of the founders of Methodism, and he has this terrifying twenty two point list of questions to ask yourself every night before you go to bed. And um, I won't I won't inflict all twenty two on us because they're pretty brutal. But um, but this kind of searching and and uh, uh, fearless moral inventory he invites us to to conclude every night includes these questions. Number two, am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Number four, can I be trusted? Number five, am I a slave to dress, to friends, to work, or habits? There are all these questions that ultimately relate to being your authentic self. Is your authentic self someone you can be proud of, or do you try to pretend you're someone else? So, be honest. Now, how do we do that? Well, my guess is each of us knows. Is there someone we need to be honest with? Maybe it's that person at work. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your children. That there's something that you have not said that you need to say. And I'm not telling you be a jerk, right? This is not about being a jerk. You should choose your words carefully. You should, you should not attempt to show how virtuous you are or to to say, I'm going to provoke a fight because then I can be a martyr. This is about being your authentic self. So ask yourself, is there anybody you do not tell the truth to? And tell them the truth. And maybe, maybe the person you need to tell the truth to is the one in the mirror. Maybe you need to tell that person that you are not capable of handling it on your own. Maybe you need to tell that person you need help. When my mother was dying, my dad wore himself out taking care of her. And I think this was something he struggled with. I think he thought that he could take care of her all by himself. And the hardest thing for him to do was to accept any kind of help in her care. First, moving her into an assisted living place, and then feeding her and getting help from friends. All the things that were involved in that. So is there... Is there someone you need to be truthful to? Is there, is there someone external to you, a, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member? Or is the person you need to be truthful to yourself that you aren't who you have been trying to present yourself as? And you're being honest to the people around you, but not honest with yourself. So ask yourself that question. Can, can I be truthful with everyone around me? Ask yourself John Wesley's Holiness questions. This is an area where the church struggles, but last week I pointed out how 
the, the church struggles to cross boundaries, and, and we always will. But this week, we see a place where the resurrection changes things. The prophet Jeremiah had looked forward to a time when God would change our hearts. And Peter says, that change is beginning because I have my fear. The fear that motivated me to deny Jesus to a little girl is gone. And now I can stand up to the most powerful people in my country and tell them, all you can do is kill me. So imagine what it would be like if the church could get a new reputation, a reputation like the one that it had in the time of Galen. Not as people who knew everything, but as people who were courageous enough to say what they really believed. Imagine if the church could get a reputation for total loving honesty. Let's be that kind of people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is so easy for us to go along with the those small, everyday white lies that seem to make life easier. Lord, help us to examine what we say so we can know if we are contributing to a corrupt, corrupting of culture or whether, whether it is something that is appropriate to say. Lord, when we speak, let it always be a truth in love, but let us not be afraid to speak truth to power. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.